0: toxicity podcast my name is mike joseph i hope that you and yours remain safe and healthy and that you remain active in the fight for social justice happening in this country right now if you are enjoying this podcast i hope that you are a subscriber and hopefully you feel compelled to leave a comment or rating on whatever platform you're using to listen I also want to give a big shout out to my buddy Louis Perlman, who appeared on an earlier episode of the Detoxicity Podcast. I recently returned the favor by appearing on his podcast, Kick the Jukebox, where I got the chance to talk about one of my favorite groups of all time, Public Enemy. You can check that podcast out at kickthejukebox.com. In this episode, I interview Sammy Pisano. Sammy is the founder and owner of Breakfast and Bed Records, a label that allows him to indulge in his love of R&B. Sammy has an interesting story that involves being an Army brat, settling in the South, and eventually pursuing his career here in NYC. We talk about how a uh, transitory existence can make it difficult to retain friends, how he experienced racism growing up in the South, and how uh, his military upbringing affected his work ethic and ability to lead, in addition to how he feels about the current social and political climate. I enjoyed this conversation thoroughly, and I hope you do the same. So without further ado, here's Sammy.
1: So hi, I'm Sammy Pisano. I am a senior account manager at The Orchard, which is the independent distribution arm of Sony Music. And I also actually run a record label called Breakfast in Bed, um, all independent and just kind of help them tell their dreams and their stories. However, they want to do that. In addition to that, I have artists that I manage named Khan Kilian. He's an R&B singer. I'm a huge R&B head. So, you know, I just love music and I love working with artists that really are passionate about their craft and helping just kind of chip away at goals and dreams together.
0: Right on. So you have a pretty interesting story. One thing in particular that I find unique is that you're a military kid and you were born in Japan. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I was born in Okinawa, Japan, which is a small island, probably like, you know, a couple hundred miles southeast of like mainland Japan. From like end to end, I think it's only 65 miles long. So even at like the thinnest point, it's only like three miles wide. So kind of a unique upbringing for sure. Now, were
0: both your parents in the military or just your father?
1: No, just my dad. Okay. Um, But as he'll always say, like, you know, being a military, you know, a member of the military, like it is kind of like a family affair because the spouses are obviously play a big part in taking care of the household and just being there to support with everything going on. So, you know, of course, I've, I've never actually served in the military, but I think that, Military life is still like a really big part of my identity for a lot of those reasons, just from, you know, my dad was a Marine for 30 years and pretty much all the way until I started high school. He was in the military and even now works for the USO, which is a you know nonprofit organization helping you know provide services and maintain facilities and everything across the world for military troops. And I don't know, it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. But.
0: How long did you live in Okinawa?
1: So I was born there, and then we immediately moved to Hawaii. But then we did two other stints, three other stints in Japan in in general, but two other in Okinawa. So probably a total of seven years altogether in Japan. Wow.
0: Before we get to kind of like the weird culture, not weird, but different than American culture, obviously, like how many different places or bases over the course of your life did you live in?
1: I want to say... I moved, I moved probably 11 times, but I think I've probably been to like eight different places. A lot of it was in the States, like outside of Japan. I I haven't really been anywhere besides, at least not for military, besides the U.S., but we were stationed in Florida, Virginia, North Carolina for a long stint. My parents were out in San Diego for a little bit, Oklahoma, so kind of got to see a little bit of everything. What's it like
0: to bounce like back and forth all over the world, essentially.
1: I definitely don't take it for granted because I think it's a really unique experience for me. And is again, like I said, like a very big part of like how I became who I am. But it definitely was a challenge because like, I never really had stability. Like as a kid, like the norm was you move every two to three years. And sometimes it's less than that. Because if there's you know, a command that needs to be picked up and the military, you know, needs your um, service member of your family there, like you you pack up and go. So I guess kind of getting used to that routine and lifestyle. I don't like all my friends were military friends. Like I think probably my oldest friend, like we're, you know, we're not like super close, but was a guy who I knew when I was like eight and like my parents were kind of, like close with their families and bounced around similarly, but we sort of like stayed in touch and everything. Cause he went to like Iceland and like parts of Europe, but like that's someone that kind of, I feel like gets me. And like, we always kind of understood each other because being a military kid, like you just know you're, you're, you know, that that's the lifestyle that you're living. So you're just kind of used to it. But then when my dad retired, like living in North Carolina, like that was a complete, culture shock to just kind of like come to a screeching halt (laughs) and then like, you know, just to adjust to the pace of Eastern North Carolina. And I mean, he was still in the military for a few years while we were there, but like, I didn't have like childhood friends that I knew from like the playground days. So that was always a bit of a challenge, like making friends and um, just kind of fitting in. But.
0: Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting to, like having to introduce yourself as the new kid in school every two years. I mean, yeah. I, I I guess at some point, and you'd, you'd have to answer this, Like at some point you might get used to that, but it still doesn't, like, there's... See, now I'm saying this from my perspective because I come from a period when there wasn't internet, but, I mean, I assume that you have kept in touch with some people from throughout the different places that you've lived in via email or social media or whatever, but it's still got to be weird to kind of introduce yourself to a whole new group of people every two years
1: yeah i mean i was kind of like right on the cusp with like the internet and social media like i think i mean we definitely had dial up as a kid but probably high school i think we had dial up through high school Damn. probably or at least at least into early high school we probably got roadrunner or something <laughs> like, <laughs> um, at some point the high speed but yeah i think like for the most part, there's like a handful of people that I, I kept up with and that we like sort of know, know each other. But, you know, obviously, like social media makes that a little bit easier. But I, I kind of wish that if I, I don't know that I wish it, but I do think it'd be a different experience if I was like a young kid and like growing up and moving, like I'd be able to stay way more connected now than I w- than I was able to then. Yeah, definitely.
0: So I'm curious about what life is is like as a military kid, like my mom and my stepdad were both in the military. They were, well, my stepdad was in the reserves by the time I was able to like realize what was going on. So it wasn't like, we didn't live on a base. We didn't do any of that stuff, but I do feel like there was certainly an element of military thinking and training that kind of crept into parts of my childhood, but you were dealing with it kind of 24 seven, like you're, you're, dad was full on, like involved in the military. And I would imagine knowing that the U.S. military is very regimented, very structured, very kind of strict, like that had to have had an effect on you somehow.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of service people will say that like, when you join the service, like you're giving up your rights. And it's like, kind of a weird thing to sort of process because like in America, it's like, no, we have rights that you know are supposed to apply to everyone and in, in the military that's definitely not the case but i think you know the trade off is that these people are are coming in and making that sacrifice and giving up their rights so that other people back home can have them and so as far as like what you said about being more like regimented like there definitely was structure like living on a base versus like off of a base like felt different even the schools felt different there were some t- some years i went to school on base other years, I went to like a private school off base. And you could just kind of feel the cultural differences. You could also definitely feel the difference in terms of like, discipline, like my parents, like were pretty strict, especially like, you know, leading into high school. But I think like, as a as a kid, like, it was sort of a product of being, you know, the son of a a father who was in the Marine Corps for 30 years, like I didn't really, for the most part, question things, because it was like, when you receive an order, it's like, that kind of is what it is. And, you do um, it. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, that's how it has to be in the military, though, literally in, like, a life-or-death situation, potentially. Like, you can't question orders. Whereas, like, I think now, culturally, like, we do want to question things. We do want to question authority. And I think, to an extent, that's, like, actually very American. You just can't allow for that in combat <laughs> by any means. But I think for me as a kid, like, I started to, like, really grow and develop as a person as I started to, like, question things and realize like oh like I've always just kind of like accepted that because I was just sort of a part of our lifestyle and then as I sort of got older that's when I started realizing oh wait a minute like maybe I don't necessarily agree with that or maybe like I definitely still agree with that but I have a different perspective now just having learned more things and I think it's I think it's important like people don't like to admit that they're wrong or that they didn't like know something like and like I just feel like like that's part of growing like sometimes. Like you have an opinion and then like years later, it's like, nope, my stance on that has shifted. And I think it's important to be able to do that rather than just like hold firm onto whatever it is, you know, but.
0: What? I'm trying to figure out a way to word this question properly. Like if you were to have a kid, would you want them to join the military?
1: Not. I mean, I don't think I would be opposed to it. Like, if that's something that they felt called to do, it'd be like anything. Like, I would want the best for my kid. And, you know, male or female, like, if they felt called to serve, like, I think that's a beautiful thing to be able to want to make that ultimate sacrifice. Most of my friends that are military kids also join the military. And, you know, for me, like, I think, you know, my older brother actually joined the Navy. And then, for me, there was definitely a lot of pressure to join the military, especially when it came to like financing school. <laughs> it was like I got sure. like some pretty good like scholarships and things like that. I had a lot of like track athletic scholarships offered and things like that, so it worked out to where I was able to finance my school that way, but the military was definitely an option as far as like, hey, if you want to pay for it, like, you know, go in, do 4 years, come out and they'll help you go wherever you want. So in that regard, like it it felt like a solution to sort of get out of, not like full on poverty by any means, but like we military life, like, especially early, like it's not like you're living, you know, glamorously by any (laughs) means. But yeah, I don't know. I, I've always felt that like, yeah, it was, it was definitely just different, but like for me, like, it wasn't the right choice necessarily, but I think, I think if my kid wanted to do that, I would support it. I would just obviously, be fearful for them. Like if they were sent into combat, like you always want them to be safe. And I think that sure. that's like the ultimate sacrifice that they're making. Right? Is that like you're they're constantly potentially putting themselves in harm's way? And you know, as a parent, you would you always want the best. So,
0: were there any like as a as a black person, were there any things in the military that were maybe discriminatory or the opposite of that? Like what was your experience with like blackness in the U S military?
1: So I never like, this is actually something, especially with everything going on in the world with all these tragic events. Like I've been thinking about this a lot. And honestly, like my experience as like, just like as a black American, like I didn't really feel it like in the military, because there is sort of a sense of community in the military where It's just like, hey, we're all here for the same purpose and literally we can all die like and everybody bleeds red. So I think there's that community and that sort of energy coming from people in the military. I think reflecting a little bit, you do look at the military, though, and see some similarities to how maybe on a more systemic level, there's discrepancies by race. Like, for example, I don't know, like I definitely don't know off the top, like how many black officers there are. But a lot of times speaking to being able to get yourself out of a certain situation, um, the military does, you know, advocate and promote to communities of color and that can help them lift themselves from poverty potentially. And that can be a good thing. Like, especially if they're, if they're up for that challenge. But I remember like my dad was an officer for 30 years and, you know, came out as a Colonel 06. Like, so being that level as a, as an 06 is like a a step away from a one star. So like, I don't know, like that, I guess I never really interacted with very many other Black, like, leaders or officers and things like that, which is something that I've started to think about. But in general, like, definitely people that are enlisted, maybe not necessarily officers, and then maybe some more high, higher ranking people that are enlisted, you know, were Black or brown. But that was something that I've kind of thought about a little bit. It's just that, like, still at the very, very top, like, I mean, I think they just named, like, one of the, the, like, the first ever black joint chief was just, like, selected unanimously, like, 98-0 in Congress or in the Senate, I mean, and it's, like, I didn't know that that was a milestone that hadn't been hit yet. So, like, right. I do think that there's still probably, like, a ways to go, like, in the military, um, like, anywhere else. So I don't, I don't want to be naive enough to say that, like, you know, racial issues don't exist there because I, I think it's it's everywhere. But I think that, fortunately, I was kind of in a community where, I didn't feel like I faced a lot of discrimination. I will say coming out of that, though, it was definitely a, a challenge and an adjustment because like in the military, everybody sort of just accepted everybody. And then I moved to North Carolina, which is below the Mason-Dixon Disc- line. So <laughs> yeah, there was people that were just like, oh, I don't like you. And I was like, oh, like I don't, I don't think I'd ever heard the N-word until I was in North Carolina. And I was like, oh, like, I didn't know that like obviously like i was like i knew about the civil rights movement but i thought you know i had like this sort of like positive outlook on the world and was like yeah and like we did that and like things are good now and it was like oh no like my experience is like way different than the experience of you know being a black american i guess right. like like stateside so because truthfully like you can be rich you can be poor like you mean athlete you can be whatever and it's like there's people that are going to feel the way they feel about you based on your skin tone, like all over the country. So.
0: And how old were you when you, when you settled in North Carolina? I feel like you said that earlier and I don't remember now.
1: Mm, I was probably only like eight or nine. Like we were, we were definitely getting to like middle school area, but my dad was still in the Marine Corps at the time. But yeah, like probably like eight or nine and then high school, you know, all through high school and college, I was in North Carolina. I would imagine
0: being in the South, you know, being below the Mason-Dixon line, My without having much direct involvement with the South, I would imagine that things were probably much different for you down there than they were for me up here, where my experiences with direct racism have been reasonably comparatively minimal like people white people sort of practice this very kind of like covert structural racism as opposed to people like throwing rocks at you or, or, or whatever but i i would imagine and you weren't in like a city you weren't in charlotte or like raleigh or durham or anything like that you know no. so
1: Biggest a suburban
0: or a rural yeah like that's got to be be different
1: Yeah. Especially like, I mean, I lived in Carteret County, which still like my my parents have a house there. Like it's, it's home for them. They're actually back ironically in Okinawa, Japan (laughs) with my dad (laughs) with a job for the USL. But, but, you know, eventually when he retires for good, like he'll be back there in Beaufort. And yeah, I guess just like Eastern North Carolina, like I feel like culturally is a little bit different than like North Carolina in general, like, especially like the middle parts like with more like cities and things like that. But then like the Western part of the state has like its own culture. So I don't know. I, I think like I always kind of, I think you're right. Like the experience with racism in the South is much more blatant. It's like, I have a Confederate flag. I want to use the N word. I want to yell at you. I want to like, like all these like instances definitely like, I mean, it's probably similar up North too, but like definitely a lot of like run-ins with like law enforcement where it's like, just get pulled over and occasionally like weapons drawn. And it's like, Oh, this escalated very quickly. And I'm like going home from work or things like that, that I didn't again realize like, Oh, this isn't normal. But yeah, I always, I always remember the South being a little more like blatantly prejudiced and racist. Whereas up here, it's like, it's definitely, you know, there's just like laws and a lot of systemic, things going on that have helped oppress for years, but I don't know that I've had the N word called to me up here. So like, yeah,
0: I mean, I can think I can count the amount of times that the N word has been used by a non-black person towards me, or I should say by a non-person of color towards me, maybe on two hands. And a lot of times <laughs> Unfortunately, when white people use it in my presence, it's because they're trying to be down. Yeah. And it's not necessarily used as a slur, even though for me personally, like, there's no, like, even if you're using it as a term of endearment, if you're not black, you don't have the right to use it. Yeah. But I mean, my impression of the South is that, you know, you get some old redneck dude or a woman that will just kind of use that word on you and use it with, with venom and with force as a slur. And that's not an uncommon
1: occurrence. Or just like, it was like a regular part of the, their vocabulary. Like, like my best friend, Will is white and occasionally, sorry, Will I'm putting your business out there, but <laughs> occasionally like his, like his dad uses that word like at him. So that's like, to white people like saying, but it's more like, Oh, can you get me this? And it's like, no, like, I'm not your slave. Like, I'm not doing that for you. Like, and that's how, like, it's just like deeply ingrained in like Southern culture. And again, that's not to say like all Southerners are like comfortable using the word by any sure. means, but definitely it was something down there that I had to kind of get used to.
0: So I'm trying to figure out like what your sort of older teenage like experiences were like like high school and college kind of coming into your own and you like you said you ran track and you were a musician as well was that like a high school thing or did that happen before or?
1: so my parents like did a really good job of like just surrounding us with things when we were kids like my brother had like a little guitar i had a little toy piano they tried to get us involved in all kinds of different sports and just get us trying things to figure out what stuck and for me, it was definitely music. Like I always just kind of had an ear for it. And with my little toy piano, could like just pick out Christmas songs and, and just melodies for things. And so eventually I started taking lessons and that pretty much continued all the way through college. Like took lessons all throughout high school, even leading into high school. And then my undergrad was actually going to be in political science. And then I went to class every day and argued with everyone. And that's <laughs> all we did was argue. And I was like, all right well and so then i auditioned for the music department and got in um as a classical pianist because that's how i was trained and then finessed it to where i switched to jazz my sophomore year and i'm really thankful that they let me do that because (laughs) i was able to graduate in four years but yeah i mean i was definitely yeah i was definitely in music um on the sports side like i played just about every major sport but i was never like an elite athlete i would say i was an elite like, track athlete slash cross-country athlete, but like, I wasn't, like, you know, I never, because again, I was always moving, and I never really, like, had the stability and structure where it was like, okay, stay here, focus on X, Y, Z, and so, like, I just feel like I've, um in every sport that I play, like, even playing basketball, like, I have, like, raw athleticism, but a lot of, like, fundamentals and skills that I just, like, never <laughs> picked up, because I was never, like, really stationary enough, and then, I really took to track and cross country in high school because it's like as much of a individual sport as it is a team sport so right. like it was kind of for me like someone that was used to being by myself like that was really easy because it was just a battle of me versus whatever's going on in my own head and like what my pain tolerance is for that particular race you know
0: actually that makes me think of something i want to go back a little bit like you know, you talk about track being kind of a, you know, sort of a a sport you can kind of practice in solitude, was, and then you mentioned Will a little while earlier. It was like, when did you and Will meet? Was it in
1: college? Uh, We met in high school actually. Okay. Um, So he, his family moved around a lot and he was basically, there was like job opportunities for his parents at the time in our hometown. So we we were both the new kids. And, you know, my name's Stanny Sammy Pizzano, which sounds Italian. And that's you know, what I Will- thought until <laughs> I realized you were not. <laughs> and he's Will Taylor. And so, um, also we both had signed up for band. And so it was like, there was two new kids that basically, again, everybody's grown up in this County together. Like everybody knows each other and there's two new kids and they were getting us mixed up and that's how we were like inevitably linked for eternity because people were like, Oh, you're will taylor and i'm like nope and they always (laughs) thought he was sammy pisano and so yeah we met then and i actually ended up quitting band because i played piano and was like oh they don't have that in this (laughs) and so like i played like mallet percussion and like kind of picked up all that but i you know once i started really taking to cross country and track like i kind of tried to shift my my time but Will was kind of doing a little bit of everything. He played trombone, so he was, like, in the band. He ran cross-country and track with me, and then... I mean, I only know Will now, Mm -hmm. so
0: the idea of him running cross-country and track,
1: that's a a visual that I can't really get in my head. Like, he's low-key, like, jack-of-all-trades. Like, he does a lot of things, like, pretty well. Like, I wouldn't say he's an elite. Like, even in high school, he was never, like, an elite cross-country runner but like he was running like probably like 21 minutes on his 5k like as you know like a teenager or whatever I was busting his ass <laughs> <because> <laughs> I, was running, I was running like 18s 17s and then college a little faster but no he was he was, was a good dude he, he's my best friend obviously and I think it was cool when he came to college with me because there was a handful of people probably like Ten maybe from our high school that actually went to the same college. So I think what made it good for us. I mean, he's always been like cuz he kind of even though he wasn't a military kid, like he was kind of picking up and moving every couple years too. And so we were both kind of cut out for okay, we're the new people again. Gotta adjust. Like we'll see what happens and so I think that's where we like even solidified our relationship in college because we were both like accustomed to that, but it was nice having that sense of familiar familiarity in someone um, that you've known for years. Yeah. So that's how he ended up. Like we pretty much, yeah. High school and college. Then he was up here in New York for a little bit too.
0: Yeah. I was just curious because if you live like a transitory existence and it's hard to cultivate like lasting friendships and then, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well then how do you, how do you meet your best friend and how do you kind of maintain a relationship over the years? But it also now sounds like you were both kind of settled in a place And that allowed the friendship to sort of grow because neither of you was jumping around from place to place every two years.
1: Right, I think think that's the main thing, both of us kind of having similar backgrounds of like instability, but then finally being like somewhat planted for a little bit, for at least the four years we were in high school. He also didn't drive. And so when we were going to college, And then later years of high school, too, even like we lived in the same area. So I was always giving them rides. And that's part of how we bonded, for sure.
0: Right on. So you get to college and you're, you know, you're playing sports. Like, was there ever like, were you like a jock? Were you like a cool, you know, I'm definitely thinking in stereotypes right now, (laughs) but like the letter jacket kind of like, you know, bro kind of jock.
1: I don't think I was ever the cool kid, like, which is weird because, like, I was never really the nerd either. Like, I wasn't ever fully unpopular. It was just always, like, oh, yeah, that's Sammy. Like, I was, like, I don't want to say tolerated because, like, I feel like people did like me and people respected me. It was just, like, that full-on, like, being included in, like, a part of a group. Like, I didn't have that in high school um, or college, really, besides, like, my core friends. I was like, you know, speaking to like student government and politics and all that stuff. Like, I was in student government for all four years of high school and all four years of college and was like elected, you know, class president like in high school and was student body president my senior year and things like that. Student body president at UNC Wilmington. So like, I can't say that I wasn't popular you because You were I, popular. <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm getting voted in, so something right. had to be working, but I think that I think a lot of that is like, again, falling back on just like my background and experiences. Like I, I, I have always tried to be somebody that wants to reach across the aisle and be empathetic and understand like what other people are going through. And so um, whatever role I was holding, like that was my ultimate goal. Like, of course I'm going to make mistakes and like was never perfect by any means, but like, I feel like I always had the right intent like, and always had the right heart in terms of, all that stuff. So, yeah, but I, 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 don't know that I like, you know, just because I was like elected, I don't know that I felt like I was like Mr. Popularity by any means.
0: All right. Yeah. I never even really considered like there's that it's been so long since I've been in a school situation. I think I've allowed like media to kind of seep into my head and it's like, <laughs> okay, there's the jocks and then there's the nerds. Like there's, but there's so much in between. I mean, what was your college experience like? Like, did you, because you didn't go to college too far from home, apparently.
1: Yeah, about two hours driving. Like, it wasn't too bad. Okay. Um, And that was, like, kind of intentional. Like, I had some track, uh, you know, offers to, like, leave the state. But I also just didn't want to run track. (laughs) I (laughs) I was, like, good at it. And I also skipped, I guess I didn't say this yet, I skipped second grade because of being a product of the military, because we were like in Japan, then we came back to the States and I was in, and it just didn't make sense for me to be in that grade. So they moved me up and, and I don't know, like, it, like, so when you factor that in, I'm also like a year, year and a half ish, younger than everyone. Cause I have a late birthday. Right. Um. So like, I'm the new kid, I'm a little smaller, like just like not at all feeling popular. <laughs> like, and I think that that impacted me with like, with sports, you know, being underdeveloped. And so I think that's why I just really didn't want to run because it was just like as a smaller guy at the time, especially like just not wanting to take that beating on my body. Like it's different than like a football beating, but like the constant like pounding on like my knees and stuff, like knowing that like I I fortunately was able to get a scholarship for academics that was four years and like that kind of took the pressure off from having to run. And so then when I got to college, like, for the most part, I mean, I still had to have jobs. I still had to, like, you know, support myself and pay for things. But I got to have a little bit more of, like, a college experience rather than, you know, just, like, work the entire time and go to class and not really get to experience. So I'm definitely grateful for that.
0: Is there anything that you wish you'd partaken in in college that you didn't do?
1: I mean the biggest thing that I did was like student government just because I don't know, like I, I, I do believe in like the system. Like I think that the system's never perfect, but I do feel like when we all are active participates or active participants in a system, like it can accomplish great things. And I spent a lot of time on that. And like my junior year, actually, I was a student body president, which, you know, was just a challenge cuz i was one the student body president which also votes on the board of trustees which helps like impact policy like for the for the whole university can vote on tuition increases and i was part of a larger body of other student body presidents like across all 17 public schools in north carolina that vote on policy that impacts the entire state and meets with the governor and like does a lot of really great things and so in that regard like it was really, really cool to be able to, for at least I felt the at the time and still do like for the right reasons, trying to actually make change. Like that was a really cool thing. But when I look back, I kind of am like, dang, like I had a lot of responsibility when I was like 17, <laughs> like 18 years old. Like I was voting on the board of trustees before I could like legally vote in an actual election, which was kind of crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Uh, but they voted me in. So that's kind of on them. But like, not, not your fault. Um, but I don't know. I, I do like appreciate a lot about UNCW because it, like, I mean, it's where I grew up. Like the first time being on my own, I was also a residence hall um, assistant. I don't know what they're called like universally, but I was an RA. You and I, um, yeah. So that was an experience too, because like you have the opportunity to see like kids, like, like when I was a junior doing that role, and the student body president role, like just getting to see kids like as they're growing up, like first experience in college, and like helping them adjust with that, I think was really cool. So I I don't know that I really regret much of college. I just I do kind of wish like I had made more time for me, because I was really like committed to trying to do things for other people. And as I've gotten older, I realize like, it's important to be a little selfish sometimes. But I definitely loved that I was able to make an impact in student government and as an RA, like teaching kids, like as they're trying to figure out like, oh, do I want to join a fraternity? Do I want to, you know, like take this as my classes and like major in this and like just like helping them through like life decisions and like just growing into the adults that they're going to be was pretty cool.
0: You appear to be really, really comfortable with leadership. Like, is is that... Does that come from your dad? Like, is you know, it a, uh, like a circumstance of the military, sort of the secondhand military training? Yeah, I mean, you definitely seem a lot more comfortable comfortable with leadership from a young age too, than you know most other younger people I know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that definitely comes from my dad. He's like you know, sometimes like when people didn't know him, like they see the tougher exterior and didn't know like what they would exactly be expecting. And he's pretty, just like, he's just really about accountability. (laughs) And like, if you do things right the first time, then we don't have to have these kinds of conversations. So (laughs) I've
0: heard that somewhere before. (laughs) And
1: he's just, I don't know, like he's, he's always held people accountable. (laughs) And I think when you, when you get to a situation where you're working with him and you understand what he's all about, like everyone that's worked for my dad for like more than like a couple years or even more than like a year adores him. Like he's just a, like really a simple person. But if you're someone that's kind of breaking that line, you know, again, going back to sort of military thinking, like when you break formation, it's like, no, like we all have to be headed in the same direction in order to achieve our goals when you have someone that's breaking that formation, like he will drop the hammer on you. And so (laughs) that was definitely like something that my brother and I tested, you know, as teenagers, (laughs) but you know, like, I think that definitely kind of helps as far as like where I got comfortable leading, but I don't know that I ever, like, if you again, if you go back to like the stereotypes, there's like the football quarterback and like, you know, the, super smart person that's like in on the debate team or like whatever like those are the people that like we kind of like at least in media maybe um like associate with leadership like I think I've always oddly enough been like a reluctant leader it's like I I think a lot of times I've kind of just sat back and watched like process and watched how things have worked and it's been like oh that's definitely not working and then I'm kind of like I actually think I could be the one to help change that. But I also, when I was student body president, I did that for a year. And then I was like, all right, my senior year, like I, you know, we set this up. Like I, (laughs) like, it can't just be all about me either. And I just, you know, like it's, it's service. Like, you know, the military is public service. Being a politician is supposed to be public service. So I'm comfortable, but I, I'm, I guess I'm also, comfortable with being uncomfortable if that makes sense like makes um, sense to me so i just because of that it's like i'll I'll do it because it might be the right thing to do at the time and also like i just feel like there's so many ways that like you can lead outside of like necessarily holding a title or being like the loudest voice or whatever like I, i think that i've always been kind of more of like a lead by example person and i can definitely be a vocal leader when needed but a lot of times, you know, especially with like my RA role or definitely being like student body president, like it was, it was more, how do I lead and like inspire people to do the right thing and have difficult conversations and help change perspective and like move things along in the right direction rather than be the person that's like, if you don't see this my way, like you're crazy. And, you know, like, that's just where, like, I feel like we're so divided. Like nobody, nobody wants to have like real meaningful conversations because when you come into a conversation already blocking out whatever someone else is thinking. It's just like ah, whatever, we're just not gonna make any progress. So
0: right. It's interesting. Leadership there's this really masculine energy around leader, what people think leadership is, which is you just kind of throw your dick around and you're like, Oh, I scream at people and I order people around, and that's leadership. And I feel like the conversation around leadership is changing because People don't react well to being scream- like being screamed at, and I-, I just think it breeds for me anyway I guess I can only speak for myself like being lectured or being ordered and being ordered what's the word I'm looking for you know, being ordered around in a very sort of uncaring, almost like vocally violent way just does not provoke the right emotions it doesn't make me want to do things. It's, it's the, it's doing things because I have to do them versus doing things because I want to do them. And I think you get better results when you want to do something.
1: Yeah. No, I I think that's just like a really good point because like, I think a good leader inspires and like makes you want to do things like, because if you're constantly like, again, in some cases, like you can't question like what's like, the goal like it's like this i received an order like i have to do this but there's other instances where it's like if that's constantly the environment that you're in and like no one feels like there's room for collaboration or things like that it's just it's kind of hard to like if you're some somebody that's supposed to be the follower like you do start to question it's like why are we doing this this way like why is that that and i think generationally it's a thing too like you know years ago like that might be structurally what a household would be like it would be like the head of the household says this, like, this is the man of the house. So that's what it is. And that's what goes. And there's no committee. And like, I'm not here to argue like with like parenting, like the parents are the head of the household and you better do what your mom and dad say. But, but I think like, like in the workplace, you know, like it's kind of weird. Like if someone's just like, this is what we're doing. And like, there's no room for like, talking and like figuring out like is this the best option like you know I I just always find that challenging and ironically despite coming up in like a military environment I'm the same as you like I don't react well to someone yelling at me if someone yells at me like now I'm definitely not going to do whatever it was you said (laughs) like yeah
0: Yeah. what did your dad teach you about a being a man b being a black man like was it ever any like sit down moment where he was like, okay, you need to do this
1: A, B, and C? My dad is not a black man, actually. So I guess he didn't know that. I um, did not know that, Sammy. <laughs> he's no, he's he's a white man from Boston, North or Boston, North Carolina, Boston, Massachusetts, Boston, North Carolina. Actually, Waltham, like that's where that's where my dad's from. He okay. married My mom, who is a black woman, in the eighties before that was allowed in some States. I th- um, no, I'm my dad adopted me. So got it. So, yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm adopted. And like, I, that's something that as I've gotten older has been, I don't know, just an interesting thing to think about because in addition to being in the military, like m- me and my dad, like his experience as a man was different than my experience as a man. And like, he raised me, just to be like the best man that he could possibly make me like, and like, I'm always going to be appreciative and grateful for that. But like, as I've gotten older, like there were times where like, I didn't even realize that I was experiencing discrimination. Cause like, it wasn't things that he would necessarily experience. Sure. So we never had like a, like we've had, definitely had sit downs to talk about like race in America. But I think even those conversations have shifted over the last like 10 years or so, because early it was like, Hey, like if a police officer asks you questions, just answer their questions. Or like if someone tells you to do something like, again, this it's military kind of thinking, like just do what you're asked and everything's fine. And like we're seeing that that's not always the case, like as a black American. And so I think that's how our conversations have, have shifted.
0: In terms of race, and I feel like I already know the answer to this and I'm just asking this to put this out in the world. How many times did you get, Oh, but you're so articulate and you're not like the rest of them. And like that kind of sort of, uh, I don't even want to call it like microaggressive. It's just silly.
1: Yeah. Like how I often all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like especially being in a like leadership position, like as an RA or where you're, speaking in front of a bunch of residents or as the student body president or you know whatever like it's just like oh wow like okay like not all black people are bad it's like that one's pretty good i don't know i i've but even i guess as a as a younger person i don't know that i necessarily realized that that was an aggression or a microaggression it was just like thank you like as a yeah. weird compliment i guess but <laughs> like I, I i don't know that i knew and I, there were definitely times where. I felt like people, I mean, people have explicitly told me that too. Like there's been people that were like, oh, like, you know what? Like you've ch- changed my perspective on black people. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, well, that's shitty that I have to wear that <laughs> like responsibility everywhere I go. Um, because, you know, as a black American, <laughs> and like you, you represent your race. And that's a lot of pressure. I also remember a girl in my freshman year of college um, from Utah and I was the first ever black person that she met in real life, <laughs> I saw in real life. Like, not even had never even seen one like in the distance. And I was like, "You like, never been in the to grocery the grocery store or in the no Best like, Buy." Her only black people that she knew was like Chris Tucker from Rush Hour, fucking Denzel. Like, I was like, "Oh man!" So I was like, her first real life black person. Like, she didn't even go to like Salt Lake City and like see a jazz game or something. Like, so I uh, I was like, that is too much pressure for me like to be the one to tell you like it's just like because honestly you go from me to you to like any other black person and there's gonna be differences because we're diverse in our own right just like you can't go from white person to white person and be like oh same shit like it's not like but that's you know hard for a lot of people to process but also for them like they're not like especially down there like she was literally in a bubble where there was like, there were no other black people. Like there was no opportunity for her to experience like anything like, so she doesn't know. And it's just like, I don't feel like that's an excuse by any means, but I understand how she got to a point where she was ignorant because it's like, Oh, you just like, you haven't put yourself out there. You have zero black friends, you know, no one that's black. So of course your research is like all you have, but it's like, what a crazy, crazy world to be in. I mean, that was 20, well, 2010, probably. That's that's
0: that's insane. uh, You
1: know, come on.
0: (laughs) In, In post... In the 21st century, for you to live in a sort of existence in which there are no, like, there's no situation in which you don't have an experience with someone of a different race or culture, just like the 21st century, that just makes no sense to me at all. Like, how can that even, I realize objectively that that can be a thing, but it just like destroys my mind that it is a thing.
1: Yeah. And it's also, it makes me question like it, uh, how much of it is it just, that's where you live and there weren't that many people around you and how much of of it is it like you just, aren't making those choices actively too. Yeah. You don't want to like, come out
0: of your comfort zone.
1: Yeah. Because I know like executives in the music industry that are like, Oh, like none of my other friends have experienced this either. And I'm like, yeah, cause you and all of your other like friends that look like you have the same perspective. Cause you grew up in the same area and have the same background. Like, of course, like if there's no diversity in your friend group, like how are you able to embrace diversity elsewhere? Like, you just don't have that perspective. So that's where I like try to credit like my dad, my mom, or just like the overall experience of being a military kid is that like by experiencing a little bit of everything, it kind of helped me just at an early age before, you know, I understood what, you know, real prejudice and like racism looks like. I kind of just learned to accept people, which was kind of cool, but you know just like anyone i still have a lot of work to do like with everything i just i think being able to be someone that has an open mind is really important and I, a lot of people just don't have that so as a result they're not gonna meet a black person and be like oh you're fun like let's hang let's be friends like they just weren't raised that way or they weren't you know brought up to where they were experiencing other black people like so they just didn't do it and whatever that may be like black lgbt really anything. Like, it's just, I don't know, it's a weird, real, weird thing to think about because it's not like my experience, but.
0: Right. No, it's, it's super important. I mean, I've, I feel like I'm comfortable with just about everybody at this point, but there are experiences that happen that push you into a comfort zone, kind of almost unconsciously. You know, the neighborhood I grew up in with, the neighborhood I grew up in Was 100% black, like where I lived in Brooklyn. Even I mean, it's a little bit uh, gentrified now, but the neighborhood I grew up in was 100% black. But then, when I was in fourth grade, I moved out to Michigan to live with my mom and my stepdad, and that area in Michigan and the schools I went to were more integrated. So I had hands-on experience, you know, being around, you know, kids of other ethnicities who I could relate to as peers as opposed to like a teacher or a doctor or someone in a position of power, which, you know, immediately destroys the myth that, you know, you have to be scared of or subservient to white people or whatever it is. Like you can relate to, you can be smarter than, you can be like, you know, all this different stuff. And again, in sort of like an unconscious way, like when I went to high school, like the population of my high school was then and is now majority Asian. So, you know, I met, you know, I met Chinese people. I met Korean people. I met Indian people. I met, you know, first openly LGBT person that I met was, you know, my sophomore, junior year of high school. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I've sort of, you know, I've met trans people. I've met, you know, people all over the, Ethnic and racial and gender spectrum. And I think when your life has that kind of diversity in your contacts, like that just makes you the most well rounded person. And like, I'm not saying that I don't have stuff, I have a lot to learn. And there are plenty more types of people that I, I, you know, I still have to meet and befriend. But I do think that having a well rounded view of the world really benefits you know, it benefits you from a political standpoint and a social standpoint and an intelligence standpoint. Like, it's just, you know, the best possible thing as opposed to just kind of staying in your your silo. So we are both in corporate America and we are Black people in corporate America. And I even, I feel weird bringing this up because you and I have discussed this a million times. <laughs> it's just like, what what is the, like, what do people who are not Black and or not in corporate America not know about the experience of being black in corporate America?
1: I think being someone that's not black, kind of depending on like what non-black means, like if you are brown, maybe you still experience some of these things. But I think specifically being white, like you might have that privilege to not just view things the same kind of way like like I think we've talked about how like going into grocery stores like down south I would if I was driving like going shopping or whatever like I would leave one store with the bags put them in my car and then go to the next store when I came up here I was like "Uh uh-oh like I don't have a car and (laughs) I was just like what do I do and everyone that was white around me would be like you just bring the bag into the store and I was like I don't think you're allowed to do that. Like I definitely don't think you can do it. As soon as I walk in, like I'm immediately eyeballs on me. People, oh, would you mind if we just take a look right, at that take bag? A like, bag? Yeah. I'm just like, man, like I have the receipt right here from this place, literally right next door. And like, you know, again, my best friend Will, like he's experienced a lot of that with me and seen like how I've been treated differently versus him in like the exact same scenario in the exact same town. So I think like in corporate white America maybe people just don't understand that their experiences um and how they might be treated like literally the person right next to them at the same company you know same tenure at the organization whatever like just can have a completely different thing and i think that that's the hardest thing in my opinion for someone that's white to like really grasp because it's like well it's working for me so like why like If if you're just kind of like going about your business and like not paying attention and making an active effort to be educated, you can totally just like blissfully ignore like all of the things that are happening, which is why I think so many people right now are heartbroken and outraged because they're like, wait a minute, do you guys know that police brutality is like a regular thing that black people experience? Like I have people that are like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, yo, like, like, (laughs) like we've literally dealt with this for years. So I, I think, I, I don't know, like I, I've even been trying to take note when I watch how certain white executives at our company speak to other white counterparts or other white like leaders at the company versus how they talk to other black leaders. And I see like a different level of patience sometimes. I see in a immediate, like I'm getting defensive because you're getting aggressive with me. And it's like, damn, like this person's actually getting aggressive, raising their voice, like even maybe showing you like signs of aggression, like by standing up or like banging my face and like that, that is tolerated. But then over here, like the, like, just by like raising your voice or, or just like pushing back in general and being like, actually, I don't agree is like, okay, well, we don't have to get so hostile here. Like, I, I think that's just what's like, so mind boggling because Truthfully, maybe some of these executives don't mean that, and they they want to foster a more inclusive environment, but they're not checking their own biases, and that's why like it's important to have these conversations and to just look at bias in the workplace. Do trainings, like whatever it takes, in order to be better. I think if you're a leader, like you should. I mean, I think as a human being in general, like you should be on a constant quest for like self improvement. Um, yeah, man. But like, if you're a leader, like and you have people that are counting on you and are under your like, you know, supervision, it's like, that should definitely be an extra emphasis. Like you should be going above and beyond, but maybe you haven't had to because why? Like everybody in my you know, team is homogenous and looks like me. So I don't have to really stretch myself, even five, 10% of what would make me comfortable. Like I don't have to do that, but now that you know the population of america is shifting i mean i was reading the other day like i think by 2040 to 2045 like uh, white people are not like they're no longer going to be the like racial majority and it's like scaring a lot of white people because they're like wait what i don't feel like they're just going to suddenly like lose power (laughs) you know what i mean because there's like generational wealth and other like things that can influence that but like I think we're seeing more and more people of color, either, you know, black or brown or biracial or whatever, multiracial entering the workforce. And like, and then again, like we were touching on like LGBTQ issues, like, like they're in the workforce as well and deserve to have the exact same opportunities that anyone else has. And if you don't know how to like interact with someone because you've never opened up your mindset, like wide enough to realize that there's people different than you, like you're failing as a leader, I think. And I just, I don't know, I just find it weird. Because even if I like, I, like, I know I have my own biases, we all do. And it's like, if I'm a leader, like if I'm in a position like that, knowing like, it's it's one thing to be good and like cognizant of your biases, but there's probably stuff that I need to work on even more that I'm not actively thinking about as much. But like in a leadership role, I'd like to think, um, especially in like a senior position at a company, like. I'm not just going, well, blinders, like this is how I do things. Because if I am, like I'm doing a disservice to other people. And it's like, I don't know. Also, I know we've been talking about the military a lot, but there's like a lot of studies and they actually use the military as an example often to talk about the importance of diversity. They first did this when they were letting women into the service because Mm -hmm. people were like, oh, like it's a woman, she's not strong, she's not, she's gonna slow me down. And it's like, Actually, like when you look at the numbers and the statistics, like, like, first of all, don't imply that a woman can't be strong or um, fast or, or have courage or anything like that's, that's a dated perspective anyways. But they've put in a lot of tests, like groups together where it's like all white homogenous, like men, right, versus like a group that has like, you know, has women in it has people of different ethnicities and things like that when you factor those things in like time after time, after time, like those were the groups that outperformed because like the strengths of many is like what made them great. And I think that that is like what America should sort of be built off of. Like we love to say we're the melting pot, but like we're not really a melting pot. If we don't embrace like the country, like and embrace people's differences because the, again, the sum of those parts is what can make us great. But if we, you know, don't allow for people to express themselves and just provide a different perspective, uh, then we're just sticking along with like one line of thinking that we can't just arbitrarily say is the right line of thinking. And I don't know, that's just like where we get stuck and we'll, we'll eventually fall behind us like a nation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You have to take into account the perspectives of all the people that live here. And welcome those perspectives. And particularly if you want to be not just falling into line, but you want to be a leader, you want to be ahead of the curve. Yeah. Like you have to take in as many multiple different perspectives as, as you can, you know, representative of, of the people that, you know, that you share, share the space with. Yeah. So how does your music like still fit into what's happening now? Like, you know, you're, you're, you've got a full-time job, like you're settled in New York, you're doing all this stuff. Like you're now, I mean, you're running a label, obviously does. Well, I guess there's, there's two questions here. One is what made you decide to start a label? And the second question is where does Sammy, the musician fit into everything else that's going
1: on? So I wanted to start a label because much like artists that just have the dream and aspiration to be like mainstream, like big time artists, like I've always been, I don't know, like I I think that applies to sports. It applies to like a lot of things in my life. I've never really wanted to be like 100% in the spotlight, like I'm totally comfortable being someone that was a huge catalyst in something and is playing the background, either as a producer, as someone in the business, because I don't know that I necessarily seek validation in the same way that other people might. Like some people do need, you know, validation from others, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That just is like kind of what makes them um, different. But for me, like it's a lot of like self-validation and the validation of people around me. So I I think I've always just been obsessed with like finding someone and being like, Hey, like we're going to build this together. Cause like our values align and like, we're, we're both just like doing things the right way and growing towards like a common goal. And like, if I could, you know, help like Khan Kilian, for example, grow to become like, you know, a big time R&B artist, like or just to, to a point, like even just to a point where he's like established like a name in the space, like he doesn't have to be Usher, but like, just to be able to get him to that point, like, I feel like it's just like something that I'm just super passionate about. And I think a lot of people in music are obsessed with like finding like the next big thing or whatever. And I just like, I'm really passionate about that, like passionate about being around other creators and other storytellers, because for me, I just love a good story. I love telling stories, but I especially love stories in whatever medium it is. If it's a book, if it's a TV show, if it's a album, just being able to like really hear someone like share a perspective, like is Sort of how we learn, and like how I like it's just like in- entertainment that I like to consume. So that's really why I started a label because like I want to find other artists that have unique stories that have something to say. Also, feel good records like it doesn't always have to be this conceptual, like deep, profound thing. Like sometimes it's just like we need to laugh and dance and um, feel good about ourselves. So I like artists that are making that kind of music too. And it's nice to have a passion project and music that you know, I'm just really excited about outside of what I do literally for work. And like, I am passionate about a lot of the music that we work on and I'm super passionate about my job, but I don't know and love every single one of our artists. (laughs) and Like it's impossible to be able to do that. And yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think having the own, my own like independent freedom and control to be able to just like like and support and like really put my you know spare time behind that like that's that's what I'm really excited about but I think it, like to your second question as far as like me the musician like it kind of goes hand in hand like I do feel like I got to a point in New York where I just wasn't I just wasn't like in the right headspace to create like I was tired like I was trying to figure out how to get into the music industry sure. there's just a lot going on in the world and in my personal life and I just wasn't I also didn't have like my music equipment. I didn't bring my keyboard up here because I didn't have the space for it. And so it was just like, I took a lot of time off of like playing piano, which really sucked because like, that was like a huge part of my identity. But like now, like I do have my stuff up here and like, I'm still producing and still making music, but it's like, I get to do it like on my own terms. I don't have to make it for anyone else if i don't want to if khan or another artist that i work with wants a record that i made like that'd be fun and that's cool because it's like just in line with everything else that i'm doing but i also can just like make stuff and be like i really enjoyed that and that was for me and i don't have to worry about the numbers and like how to, how are fans engaging with it and like what do people think like because i i don't really care like it made me feel good like i was like maybe stressed or tired or just needed like a release that particular day and like worked on something and it made me feel good so it's like a really good like self-care thing for me at this point but i do think at some point i will release music in more of like a proper like i actually want to kind of put a push behind it but i I, I, even with that like for my own personal stuff like i'm not gonna care about its commercial success as much as I will cons or someone else's like, sure. for me, that's like me. And it's like, if people like it and love it, obviously that's the goal, but I like it. So that's <laughs> like, all that matters. Cool. Yeah. What do you think that the
0: current, that will be the lasting effect of what's going on in history right now? Like we're in, as we record this, we're in a, t- a very tumultuous time. There's a lot of stuff happening and it really feels like a pivotal moment like things are, it feels like things are shifting, whether they actually shift or not. And things already have shifted. Yeah. But between COVID and the presidency and all of the uh, racial uh, things that are happening in the country, like, where do you think, where do you think we're headed? That's a rough question, that's a tough question. But like, what do you think is going to be the outcome?
1: I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic like generally speaking i feel like i am an optimist anyways um like at heart but i do feel good about what's going on right now i i'm frustrated that we had to go through so much tragedy and continuously go through so much tragedy and it only took like us literally being locked down on a quarantine and like being piled up and like on social all day to like really just see something and react for both black people to feel fed up and just be crying and screaming out for help louder than we've ever had. And then, you know, white people and other, you know, people of color, like kind of coming together and realizing like, this is like a serious issue. So I feel like history, oddly always like, they always say it's cliche, but like history repeats itself. Like I do see so many parallels to like the civil rights era Mm -hmm. and a lot of great legislation um, and reform came out of that but there's a quote from like Winston Churchill that I'm like definitely going to paraphrase. Cause I don't know it off the top. But, <laughs> um, but like, he always says something that he's like, Americans always get it. Right. It just takes them a while. But at the end of the day, like we always do. And like, that's how I kind of feel about America. Like at one point slavery was a contentious issue. Like it was like, no, like why, like why would we treat black people as humans? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like, that was, like, a legitimate argument, you know, years ago, and that felt radical. And so, like, the things that people are asking for in terms of race, in terms of, like, just other civil liberties, it's, like, that feels radical now. But I think in time, like, those things aren't going to feel radical. Like, even if you, you know, look at, like, other movements, like, if you look at women's rights, like, people were, like, why would women do like why would they work like why would they be outside of the house cooking and cleaning like why like how's like that was actually someone's perspective yeah. at some point and like that's crazy and, it's a lot like, of people's like,
0: perspective <laughs> yeah
1: and and to this day like it's still i'm sure some people's perspectives but like you know men went off to world war one and world war two and women had to keep the economy running and keep the households running and then men came back and it was like well, we're not ready to give this shit up. And like, you know, there's always moments in time where there's, there's change. And unfortunately, it always takes something pivotal to like happen for us to really wake up as a country. But like, I am pretty optimistic, because I do feel like like if I have kids one day, and definitely if I have grandkids, like, I feel like they're gonna be in a better place because of all this. I just feel that like right now, like now more than ever, it's important on all of us to like be better and hold e- hold our, each other and ourselves accountable is like, I, I don't want to be that person that just like sat on the sidelines while history was happening. And right. like, and it was just like, Oh yeah. You know, like I definitely wasn't for the things that were going on, but definitely wasn't, like, you know, outwardly against it. It's like, now's the time to like make change and um, be vocal about it. I mean, I don't think there's anything in history ever, at least American history, where we haven't had to go through a period of protest and or rioting in order to get what we wanted. Anything, yeah. like, and I I, I don't want to, you know, ever obviously come down violence or, you know, property damage and all the things that are going on in these riots. But there's been like that that has been undermining the overall message of like the peaceful protesting that's been going on that like, has been nonstop, like relentlessly for, for weeks. Like I don't remember a time in my lifetime where we've done that because it's hard enough to get like, you know, 10 friends together to Mm -hmm. go, like just to get on like nowadays, you know, like a zoom hangout like to play games or something or like in real life when we were able to see each other just to like go to a movie or like, it's hard enough to get my friend group together. You think we could unite an entire like region or country. So like, all 50 states are protesting. Like, this is just something that we've, we haven't we have seen in a very long time. And I feel like in a lot of ways, like, has the similarities, similarities to the 60s and the civil rights movement, but has its own, like, unique things where I'm like, I think people are just waking up and realizing it's time, you know? And when you talk about racial issues, like, black people, the period of time from, like, slavery to, like, Emancipation Proclamation and then Juneteenth is like that was like hundreds of years right and then from Juneteenth to like you know desegregation like under Jim Crow laws that's like about another 80 years like so the end of desegregation quote-unquote because that kind of changed by state um, or varied by state to now is like only 60 years or so so we haven't even been free in the sense that we are now well as long as like there was segregation so like i'm optimistic about like what the next 20 years looks like because over 20 years like that'll be crazy and then you know hundreds of years from now like i i'd like to think that you know this country like we will get it right eventually (laughs) like i just i hate that again like people like in a place where we say like we're the land of the free and that there are people that don't feel that way. And I hate that about us. And like, I'm always going to be someone that tries to fight for that so that everybody feels like they belong somewhere. And I do think we have it great relative to other countries too. So like, I I never want to take any of that for granted either. I just, I think it's just really important right now for us to like not lose sight of like how powerful of a moment this is. And I think there's a lot of people right now that have to really realize like what, what do I stand for? Like, what are, what are the values that I want to really get behind? Like as a person with my partner, with my household, like what are we doing? Because it, all of that really matters right now. Um, Absolutely. And it's just like, we've never seen anything like this. And it's just like, you know, is horrific and like crazy of a time it's been like there. There's a renewed sense of hope that I haven't felt in a long time. So I'm, I'm really excited for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, Technology has been a big part of the the shorter frequency that's been required to to start change. I mean you know you think about desegregation and where we're at now, where we're at now in 2020 it's sixty years, which is you know shorter than the lifespan, shorter by twenty years of the lifespan of the average American. So there are a lot millions of people in this country, you know millions of black people in this country that can actually remember before desegregation happened. Yeah. But I think because we have technology and we have social media, and to an extent technology allows voices to, you know, it takes away the hierarchy kind of of voices. And I think, you know, having those messages amplified now is really going to be the catalyst for shorter, you know, for a shorter turnaround time in regards to change. You know, people can pick apart social media all they want. But a lot of these movements would not have gained the traction that they've gained without it. Right. Kind of makes me wonder like back in the early days of the civil rights era, like how the hell did the word get out? You know, I mean, I guess, you know, newspapers or or whatever, but uh, you know, this movement just by virtue of the fact that culture in the world is in a place that's much different than it was back then. It's so much easier to access news and experiences, I feel like this is going to have a greater, hopefully, you know, a greater positive change and a quicker positive change. Yeah. So I'm going to give you my typical last question, which sometimes I forget to ask, but I've remembered the last couple of times. (laughs) What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given?
1: Hmm. I mean, probably not even from like one singular person but i would say like just being always be unapologetically yourself and be you that's just been something that like whenever i felt like i didn't fit in or you know was struggling to make friends or felt especially like as a teenager like wanting to kind of change who you are a little bit to like conform to other people and like struggling with identity like that's something that for me has kind of worked is like just kind of owning like, this is who I am. And obviously I'll always try to make improvements on who I am, but I'll do those for me and for the people that I care about, not to conform to what maybe society or other people might find as the norm. So that, yeah, that's definitely like the best piece of advice because I, I mean, I've watched a lot of my friends like go through like sort of identity crisis. So like feeling like, well, I want to be this, or, you know, I've, I've watched other people struggle with like their sexuality and like just feeling like they have to suppress that and feeling like they don't belong because of who they are, like who they truthfully are as human beings, not because they quote unquote chose to be like, I just, you know, like I I obviously can't really do anything for, um, you know, to like prevent those things that are going on in society that are like kind of wrapped around and just causing people to like, like I can't, I can't do anything for people that are in certain environments, but like I would definitely encourage people to feel confident as much as possible in who they are and just be that and have no regrets in being that because I think that that's important. And I think also like people being able to be themselves authentically is just like a really part of like what makes any team great. Like, you know, I've been watching like, well, it's over now, but like the Michael Jordan, uh, documentary like Rodman was wiling but they just kind of (laughs) like let him be him and it was like he played a role but also like Jordan was kind of an asshole right and like that worked for him you know so like I don't ever want to say that like the way that I lead has to be the way or like this person has to do that like because everybody has to be sort of unique to them but maybe I'm more of like a Scotty you know like kind of like the definitely like a leader on the team but like yeah the glue guy that can be vocal and can be lethal but you know like for the most part it's like just about bringing everyone together and like we're all just working towards the same goal everybody has like different styles and personalities but like let's not let those things distract us from like what what our mission is and i don't know like like my friend group like i'm allowed to be me and I don't know, like that's like those are things that I appreciate and maybe other environments. I haven't always been able to do that, but like as an adult now, like I'm constantly like, All right, I guess I just don't fit in there because this is who you're getting at this point. So. Right,
0: right. No, I think that's super important. At the end of the day, you have to live with yourself. So you should be as happy with yourself and as comfortable with yourself as possible. I want to big up Sammy for appearing on this podcast and sharing a story. This podcast really is all about sharing stories and empathy and learning from the experience that other people have been through, and I appreciate the fact that all of my guests so far have been so open and honest. If you want to know more about Sammy's label, go to breakfastinbedmedia.com. You can also follow them on Instagram, at breakfastinbedmedia. His main artist, Con Kilion, can also be found on Instagram, at Con that is C-O-N-K-I-L-L-I-O-N. And what I think I'm going to do going forward is spotlighting a very specific charity each week that you can donate to. And this week, I'm going to talk about the Transgender Law Center. Uh, they were California's first fully staffed statewide transgender legal organization, and they're nationwide, and their mission is to connect trans people and their families to technically sound and culturally competent legal services, increase, ince- increase acceptance and enforcement of laws and policies that support California's transgender communities, and work to change laws and systems that fail to incorporate the needs and experience of transgender people. You can find them at transgenderlawcenter.org. Remember, as you're fighting for black lives, that black trans lives are also black lives. And additionally, it is still Pride Month as I record this. So a big shout out to everybody at Transgender Law, Transgender Law Center doing what they do. If you are interested in this podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram at itsmikejoseph. Uh, you can also go to facebook.com slash detoxpod. If you would like to email me, you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com feedback, recommendations, topic recommendations, guest recommendations, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, that email address is detoxpod at gmail.com. And of course you can inbox me or DM me as the kids say on Instagram at it's Mike Joseph. Make sure that if you are listening to this podcast, well, you don't have to do it, but I would love very much if you did it. If you not only subscribed, whether you're on Podbean or, apple Podcasts or spotify or whatever i would love if you subscribe to be alerted of new episodes in advance or right as they uh go live also i would love very much if you left a rating and or a comment about the show can't get better without constructive feedback so i appreciate anything that you have to say and thank you to everyone who has left feedback whether online or has reached out to me in person i thank you very very much so, going to wrap up this episode. Thanks again to Sammy. Thanks to you for listening. I hope that you and yours remain safe and healthy. Stay woke. This has been Mike Joseph, of the Detoxicity Podcast. I'll catch y'all next time. Peace.